You're listening to the Top Woman Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Top Woman Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Top Woman. Business Unusual. Hey guys, um, thanks for joining us today on this podcast. I just wanted to go through and just explain our goal of the Business Unusual podcast and, and really what we're trying to achieve at Topco. We're looking at helping organizations within South Africa and, and seeing how we can grow and do more business. And the way that we see that we can do that is by putting you in touch with those organizations that are shooting the lights out, those organizations that are blowing up their sales through their customer service, through innovation. What we've decided to do is to obviously you know, share these insights, these, these critical interviews of these business leaders from Africa and around the world. And, and we do that through these podcasts, through our newsletter, and through our summits and awards. You know, for us, we're about introducing you to a trusted network of great companies in Africa. So guys, go to the platform, look it up. There's some great podcasts, there's some newsletters that you should be part of, but there's also some great events that you should either be looking to get involved in. And and, uh, if you're needing help being introduced to someone, hit me up. Thanks guys. Welcome to the Topco Business Unusual podcast. Um, today I'm joined by the very lovely, beautiful, award-winning author, director, um, Kate Woodley. Um, wow, it's it's great to see you. You're beaming, and you've just had a child, and you're still beaming. So, <laughs> thank you, Ralph. <laughs> thank you. I'll take that and I'll run with it. Thank you. Sorry, what did you? I didn't get the question. Sorry. I, I hope you're well. I said, but I'm I know you are. Very well. Very well. Thank you. I hope you are well as well. Yes, you know, probably not as well as you, young children to keep you, keep you going, but yeah, um, yeah. a new child. The lack of of sleep, yeah, that's for sure. (laughs) You don't look like it. It looks like you're getting all your sleep, but. (laughs) Definitely not, Ralph, definitely not. (laughs) And are you back to work or you, you know, just working remotely? So, I mean, when I obviously had my kid, I went back quite soon. I did it for my first kid and yeah, my second one came a bit more naturally. And then obviously because of lockdown, we worked remotely for the first few weeks and we officially opened our offices about a month now. And, and so yeah, quite conservatively as well. Yeah. And, and so how did you find the lockdown with a brand new baby with no sleep? It was it good timing or was it? It was tough, Ralph. It was not easy. Um, yeah. you know, manage because we've got two boys the older one you know him being at home and interesting enough we have a great support structure but i think when you're home your kids want you they don't want the, the or the nanny or the grandparents they really just want you so it was quite difficult to manage it at the beginning but i think we, i got into a rhythm quite soon after that so yeah it got better definitely did get better. i think what it showed and i mean we can talk about this later but it just showed in terms of the role of women in the modern workplace, how suddenly it's fair for everybody to see just the challenges for women that are way different from men and the respect. I think people are, I, mean, I know there was a lot of violence and abuse against women, but I think on the other side, in corporate world, there was certainly an eye opening and, and an empathy almost like, oh, wow, you guys rock because um, we don't know how you do it. Absolutely. I think from my perspective, um, firstly, I've got to commend my husband. I think he plays a very, very big role in terms of taking on the responsibility. Our entrepreneurs and we kind of split the responsibility really, really well. But I think what was what was interesting is that in my space specifically, and I, I as I've indicated previously, is that I work with predominantly females. And what I saw came through quite solidly. It was really hard for them to balance everything still run what we needed to do because even though we went to lockdown we were still very operational and how to balance doing schoolwork and 
cooking and taking care of their family and working a full day. It was really challenging. But as a leader, I think it taught me flexibility. You know, it taught me to be okay that, you know, the times during the day that your staff are going to actually sit down and do a team session with your their kids. Mm-hmm. So that was really nice because I think it, it kind of moved me into a much more fluid space, being an employer, being a leader, because um, I understood my own challenges, which made it a lot easier for me to understand others. Um, so it was a really good learning curve for myself. And I think for my team, we still managed to get what we needed to get done just at a different time, possibly in the day versus kind of being at the office doing certain things. So delivering certain elements during a, during a set period of time, but we were just equally successful. And I mean, how much is the, has the organization that you're leading? Cause you lead the franchise division. So yeah, I'm the franchise director for one of the areas called the DCS Bedford View area. Yeah. So that's my responsibility. Sorry, Ralph, your question. So, so I mean, how much has, has the business changed with COVID? Has it, has it changed at all? Has it not been disrupted? Is it just business unusual? Has it been like I a think, pivot? So it's been an incredibly interesting time for us. I think it's, it, it's changed quite a bit because Obviously, firstly, you go into a lockdown period, which means that you're working remotely. So as a big business, we had to sort of mobilize everybody into the health space. And we managed to do it really successfully. So I think from that perspective, we were quite proud of that. I think the second element is we still managed to deliver the same level of service to our financial advisors as well as to our clients, even though we went into this lockdown period. I think where the challenge possibly came through is where our financial advisors had to kind of change the space-to-face ability to sit down with the client and actually market Discovery's products. Now they had to do it over a Zoom session. And it's quite challenging, especially if you haven't established a relationship with the client, it becomes quite difficult to do so over a Zoom session. So I think those were the things that we, we kind of saw that was difficult. If it was an existing client, it was very easy to continue doing business with the truth of it is from a, from a new business perspective, it was quite hard. But looking at our figures and looking at our stats, I, I think we did really, really well considering you know, lockdown and, and the regulations that went around the ability to do business. We just kind of navigated different product lines. And I speak specifically in my business, where we might have faded down on some lines, we found opportunities in others. So I think of Insure as an example, uh, where clients started budgeting they started re-looking at the premium. So it created a massive opportunity for us to, to bring on clients that weren't Discovery Insure clients. And we actually did exceptionally well in the last couple of months on that particular product. So it seems a way that some, some business units sort of fell down, but others, the growth markets, and you can see how technology is going to create these opportunities. It's funny how you mentioned Discovery Insure, because I think it's been highly talked about around that the vitality and also the banking around this this movement towards behavioral sort of engagement and it's got a lot of plaudits internationally now you guys have won a lot of awards and stuff how much of a difference does that make that, that you have a different sort of value proposition to possibly other insurers who are looking at just a solution versus changing your behavior yeah. So I think when we initially launched um, Discovery Insurance quite a while back, uh, it was, it's a different concept being brought to market. So it wasn't easy to sort of get people to sort of buy into the concept. But guys that have engaged on a vitality level, when you're launching a product on behavioral banking or where you're monitoring an individual's um, ability to drive, it becomes easier to sell that because they've already engaged, they understand what the thinking is behind it. So I think you're absolutely right. It's a one-stop shop. We have every offering now specifically. I think with the add-on of banking, it's phenomenal because uh, the, the individuals that we, firstly, we've had, we have a phenomenal client base, which means that we have a great opportunity to bring on those clients from a banking perspective. But just experiencing it in my own capacity compared to a competitor, you know, it's been a phenomenal experience. And, and I think if I look at it, I'm probably an example of that of someone that's got every single product at discovery including banking and i can understand the value of the integration chain so if 
I look at it, I think as, as, as we progress uh, on the banking side, it just ties in everybody and there's a greater value offering overall in terms of all product lines, as opposed to just being a pure insurance uh, company versus looking at the banking sector, which is now part of our business. And it's interesting that everybody's sort of within their organizations using your products because, I mean, that, that's a, an employer brand of choice, really. I mean, to, yeah. to have that scenario. Yeah. Um, was it, do you think that was, you know, uh, thought of or do you think it was by accident or? So are you referring to from the perspective of an employee and get, being part of it? I think yeah. when you're in the business, you, you're so passionate about it. Right, Ralph, you, you understand how it works, the value proposition. I mean, how could you not want to be part of the business? So how could you not want to be part of banking or Discovery Insure or Life or Invest? So I think just being in that space, you understand the value that you're receiving from the product, uh, product suite itself. It makes it impossible for you to be anywhere else. Uh, so that's I, my I think you take it for granted, but not every organization has has that same situation to be fair. <laughs> yeah, no, true. Very true. Very, very true. I wish it so was. But... Discovery, Discovery people are incredibly passionate about the brand. We, I, it's, there's just, I always say it's like, for me, it's like it's my spiritual home. I can't even explain no. that to anyone. It's just, it's a perfect fit. Um, mm. but yeah, it's very difficult to kind of probably explain it to someone else who's not very pro-Discovery. Mm. But I know you also wrote the book about be the CEO of your own brand. So it's sort of like, do you think there was lessons from the way the discovery positioned themselves? And then, you know, you talk about how you accidentally found this, you know, wrote this book. But I mean, are yeah. there are there likenesses, do you think? or Definitely, because I think it, it goes back to the most fundamental, which is uh, reputation. I think if I think of when I talk about this concept of personal branding, it really is built around what is your reputation? Uh, reputation supersedes product. You know, you can be placed in one company versus another, but people trust you as an individual. And I think the same principle applies in the discovery space because it's such a strong brand, especially from our health perspective, because we dominate the health market. And I think the reality of it is, is that based on that, it makes it easier for a client to sort of integrate all the other business with us. Um, so it really is about branding and, and reputation. And I think it ties in really, really well from that perspective. I mean, I, I get the impression that more now than ever, people should be or will be investing in their own brand, um, especially with COVID, probably pre-COVID, but, but even now more than ever, because they don't quite know where they stand in terms of their organization. So they need to now position themselves. Are you, are, you seeing, are you getting that sort of feedback? Definitely. I think, you know, if you look at it, uh, the, I mean, the, the business market is contracted quite substantially, which means that in order for you to build a very good personal brand, you've got to be really good at what you're doing. You've got to be the best in it. You've got to have this reputation of excellence. And I think people have focused inwardly around that because you've got to become more marketable. So if, for example, if companies are not employing, but they would look at employing the best, that's what will be the differentiator. So I always said, like, within the space of kind of developing your own brand, it's critical that when you're looking at your field specifically, whatever it is, be it in the legal profession, be it insurance, um, mining, engineering, you've got to make sure that you are the best in that particular space itself. And, and I think when you kind of have got to that point, then you know that it's not about applying for a job or it's not about trying to hunt for business. People already trust you and they know that they will come to you. And the same applies in business. You know, it's all about reputation. It's all about connection. It's about making sure that you're very good at it. And it becomes unquestionable in terms of whether people want to engage with you or not, or whether they want to do business with you. So you're absolutely right. I think COVID's put a lot of pressure around the best of the best coming out. Uh, I don't think organizations will retrench individuals that are not good. I think they need that kind of brain power. They need people that are exceptionally good to allow the business to continue. They're, not retren they're probably retrenching individuals that are the weak links in the space. That's my personal view on it. I mean, <clears throat> obviously, we do awards and conferences and that sort of stuff. 
And so we have a view on reputation, enhancing reputation. I mean, what have you seen as the, the big drivers for people? So if someone's like, hey, I want to improve my brand, my personal brand, what would you encourage them to do? Because obviously working hard is one thing, but it's not just about working hard. You know, there's, there's a certain amount of smartness to it and research and um, I, I interviewed Magda from Signia the other day and she, and she talked around, you know, um, viewing the landscape, um, assessing the landscape. Yeah, I think that's very critical. I think I always say it's also about being street smart. So you can have the academic smart, and you can have the street smart. And, and that the combination of both is absolutely critical because if you're going into an organization, you've got to understand who are the influences in your space and you know, whether you're connecting with those individuals is absolutely critical because business is about who you know. It's about how you've connected with people because to get an opportunity just at random becomes really difficult. So I think when you're looking at this, this, this concept of sort of building a reputation and focusing on building brand it's a combination of various factors so there's i call the black and white which is your cv in terms mm -hmm. of what you've achieved your academics it's it's also inclusive of your connections in terms of people you connect with your network etc and also you've got to be able to back what you've put out there you've got to be really good in terms mm -hmm. of uh, what you're promising to deliver so if you're mm -hmm. about being the best in a particular field, you've got to be able to back it in terms of what you've delivered and, and your sort of history in terms of where you are. So that's, I think it's really a threefold approach to it. It's not just a pure academic picture, looking at someone's CV and thinking you're fantastic. It really is about connectivity, uh, networking, which is inclusive of the same category, but also the ability to be exceptionally good at your job. It's, it's really about, it's reputational excellence more than anything. How big is marketing in that? Because I mean, I often think of like authors, for instance, and uh, Robert Kiyosaki had that famous interview with a, with a leading journalist in Hong Kong. And they said, how did you become the best selling author? And, and he suggested that she does a sales training course. And she said, I'm an author. <laughs> and he said, well, look at best selling. And, and so and I think of people who get degrees and it doesn't help if you've got a degree if no one knows about it. And so how important is marketing in this do you think for personal branding? So I think at the outset, yeah. So I think at the outset, you know, you shouldn't be the world's best kept secret. I always say that, you know, in terms of people knowing what you're capable of doing. But I think there's also a fine line between arrogance and confidence. You know, you. I always think of Facebook as a wonderful example. Sometimes people get too caught up, or social media. Let me be clear about it: social media, Instagram, Facebook. They get too caught up on this, this concept of self-promotion, but I think you've got to be very careful about what you're putting out there. Now, some people construe you as completely self-centered. It's all about you. It's your ego, as opposed to uh, really questioning what value are you adding? And I think that's the difference is that if you, reputation is around value, it's not what you get out of it. It's what you can add to, to the space that you're in or the community that you're in. And that I think, be showcased but in a, it doesn't have to be in a flashy manner it can be in a humble manner but yet you can win the hearts of people if that makes any sense um, so yeah I think you've got to just watch that it's incredibly critical in terms of your brand but don't be arrogant about it while you're building your brand That's yeah I agree I, th I think it's also like LinkedIn actually says there the line it says what do you want to share and, and it's, a, it's a platform for sharing with your colleagues, it's not, it's not really about you. And, and I mean, during this time, you talk around building those relationships and getting out there and meeting people, which I also agree with, and some people aren't good at it, but I mean, with COVID, that's an even bigger challenge. What, what are you seeing how people can get through that? Because for me, that seems like the biggest challenge. A lot of people's cell phones are, not there they're not in an office environment to get hold of people in that manner isn't quite the same building those relationships and those rapports with those influences is going to be a bit harder so my experience has actually been the opposite i think during COVID, people have relaxed a little bit more right so it means that you can connect with them on a different level uh, and what i mean by a different level is that you see the human side to them uh, for example a, a webinar this morning 
And on the webinar, you know, in the background, the kid was shouting, screaming, and it was, it was like the wife was chatting. It was so, it was more real. It's not, it's not you know, we, COVID is a tough place because you, you're dealing with so many emotions. So each person is going through challenges in their own drama, be it financial challenges, be it they're on their own, be it like overwhelmed, you've got too much happening. There's so many uh, sort of different uh, perspectives. And I think the reality of what I've experienced is that if you reach out to people now, they're more than willing to sort of connect with you because they kind of need someone that's there for them. And, and I think the intent of why you're reaching out to people is also critical. If you're reaching out with the wrong intention, people read into it quite quickly. If you reach out because you truly care for them, um, it holds a lot of weight and it, 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 it actually be, it becomes really critical and it shows them this value to this relationship. So I think in COVID, initially when we all went into lockdown, we also focused inwardly. And I think you had to consciously kind of uh, bring yourself out of that space to sort of say, there are other people out there that need you, that need you to reach out to them. And my experience has been fantastic. If anything, we've gotten closer. Now, I think of my team as an example. We meet more often on Zoom, and we have a lot more fun on Zoom, I think, than we've ever had in the past. And it's been a fantastic experience on that level. Even on a family level, you know, you're meeting on Zoom, irrespective of the context. But you just have a lot of fun, and you laugh, and you just kind of make the best of the situation. So definitely can connect people over this period if anything people need you more now than ever yeah, and i think that's the opportunity to reach out because of that it's about how you can serve people i mean that's the way i try and look at it how i think there's that there's that principle in life is that you do good to one person it, it comes back to you um and so how can you serve people? what can you do for them yeah it's critical it's absolutely critical Rob. So, I mean, one of the other things that we're seeing is obviously gender empowerment is growing um, in terms of its priorities in the, in the country. And I know that you're like a judge and you speak it out. As <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on, on gender empowerment currently? I think, you know, as, if I look at the country as a whole, um, I don't think we nearly where we need to be. That's the truth of it in terms of if I just take it as a pure statistical view, uh, I don't believe we are close to where we should have been, I mean, almost what, 25 years into it. And I think we could have done a lot more. Uh, but saying that, I, I'm proud of where we are. Um, you know, we've achieved a lot more. We've focused a lot more in terms of it. Um, I just feel like my, my only concern is that, you know, COVID must not put a stop to it. Uh, and what I mean by it, because everybody's just got so much on their plate, so much on their agenda, it's like a survival period. That's how I see it. Mm -hmm. And I hope that gender empowerment is not on the back burner. I think that is kind of the thought process that I'm in, um, in terms of organizations, in terms of businesses, in terms of us as individuals. You know, you, we so in this COVID period, we need to get through it. We need to find a vaccine and we, we're all just outwardly focused. And, and I think, because remember, empowerment is a matter of the heart, right? So you've got to be able to understand that it's not something you, you park on an agenda and you leave it. It's got to be something that's there all the time. And I'm not convinced that everybody has continued that journey during this time. I think they've parked the agenda. Mm. And, uh, and it's a concern for me to answer you. I think for, logically for me, if I see how we can push through and grow, it is through gender empowerment because I think that's the biggest growth opportunity that we have is bringing women, including women into the economy, helping them grow their businesses. We know that they are better with money. We know that they're obviously um, more secure in terms of when they take on debt, they're more likely to pay it back. Um, we're seeing in the States that the growth in businesses is coming from particularly black women. You know, that I think it's about 3000 new businesses every day are coming from black women. And so we, we, we're seeing internationally that if we can get behind women and growing them within organizations and entrepreneurs, it can completely transform our, our opportunities as well. Someone mentioned, yes, we did, we did a masterclass, Carl did a masterclass, and, and I think they said that 90% of women's income in some way forms part of the investment back into the household where it's about 40 or 30% for men. So they're also growing our... Stats, uh, sure. 
It's terrible, but but I think if we look at, I think it's also one of those things. You said it's a motive thing, but actually from a, from a male's perspective, I look at it as a very logical thing. I look at it as very like, if you look at the data, you'd be, an, I don't want to be funny here, but you'd be an idiot if you're not driving gender empowerment because it makes sense for, for every commercial mm -hmm. and social company reason. But Ralph, you and I understand that. We know it's critical. I'm not convinced. I mean, if you kind of think about it, if we had, if, if everybody understood it the way we did, don't you think we'd be far further down in terms of what we would have achieved and where we had to be? And I'm, I'm just saying that I'm not convinced that we're, it's on everybody's agenda. And, and that's just it. It's not a tick box in a space. It's not a, it's not a to do this. And this is, it's like one of the, the items on the agenda. It mm -hmm. is part of the strategy. It should be part of the strategy because the common sense approach is there. The data shows that it's incredibly critical. I just don't, I'm not convinced that our leadership in this country has taken it as seriously as they should. I don't believe that. Because if they had, would it not have been a different outcome? That's my view. I mean, I look at, I, I, I kind of think it's a cultural possible problem and like a legacy issue, culturally, legacy-wise. But also, I mean, someone said to me, 100 years ago was the first time women were really brought into education, right? And now you're seeing universities, which are far more women getting PhDs and qualifying and going to tertiary university in the States than men now. I think it's like 60% compared to 40% men. It's, it's driven that way. So looking at that and knowing that after studying comes skills and then employment and, and work. Are you not thinking that it's going to naturally happen and that we just, that natural shift is going to happen or do you think it needs way more emphasis still to drive that because of the culture issue, the, the, mm -hmm. the biases? Definitely. I don't, I don't believe it's a natural process. I think, yeah. I think it has to be, it, it's a mindful process. It's a conscious process. It's, it's start pushing the agenda. It is uh, women that have already reached positions of, of influence that can change it. I don't believe it's an, I absolutely don't believe it's a natural process. I think the, the depend, and it also is very cognizant of what the culture is in the business itself. You know, if, if that, well, not diversity, but if transformation is, is critical, then it, it would be on top of the agenda, but I don't, it's not a natural process in my view. It really has to be, it kind of has to be pushed. It has to be irrespective of whether you know, the stats on an on education level proves differently. I mean, I always think of it, I did a course at Harvard like just over a year ago. Mm. And it, it goes to your point where it was predominantly uh, split. I think the class was about, and I, I quote the figure, it was about 70, 30, 70% female and 30%. Yeah. Some schools, it's that bad, yeah. Yeah, and it was all of, I mean, we were representing different parts of the world right so it was really nice to kind of see the investment in female leadership and um, the future of those individuals but I, I don't believe it's something that comes naturally because when i connected with some of them in that space it was really about asking for the opportunity versus being given the opportunity if that makes okay. sense i had to kind of push this is why it's important to me and this is why i have to do it so that's why I say I don't believe it's a natural process, but that's just on an international scale that I, that was what I experienced. And I just think that, but I think that the more, you know, women, I think we confuse this. It, it's not a gender issue. It's not about women taking ownership for it. I think it's, uh, it's, it's equally important to a man that's in, in, in a position of influence. He, he has to actually see it as a matter of the heart. And in my view, in my experience in being in the insurance field, there's very few leaders that see it that way, that are, that are driving that agenda, that, that wants to see that kind of transformation. I don't think it comes naturally to everybody, if that makes any sense. I, and I don't think it's a deliberate attempt not to, uh, to sort of push the agenda. I just think they just kind of go with what's, what's worked, if that makes any sense. What's the kind of the unknown? Sorry? Maybe it's the unknown. They don't know. They don't know what yeah, they don't know. You know it's, yeah, it's, and so it's about education and driving. I mean, one of the other big issues that I see is, is you know, access to funding just generally for entrepreneurs, but driving entrepreneurship 
in South Africa? How do we, you know, I think one of the reasons the states are so successful because of their access to funding across different disciplines. But I mean, it, I see that as a potential big opportunity if we can get more funding, mainly for women entrepreneurs, but even, you know, township entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs yeah. in general, if we can get behind our entrepreneurs, I think that's going to be a big opportunity and and reading your book i think is something that's going to help them because mm. i i also get the sense that just coming out of university and becoming an entrepreneur is not necessarily always the right way of doing things so ralph i have a view on that can i share it with you yes you know like people are so eager about becoming entrepreneurs and they want to they all think they're going to be the next bill gates or you know it's just for me and I think that you've got to have your tenure. And what I mean by that is for an individual that just comes out of university, in my view, it's critical for them to work for an organization and get that kind of experience first for a number of reasons. One being you, um, you firstly kind of seeing how a corporate works or if it doesn't have to be corporate or private, it can be public or private. You understand the workings of the environment. You kind of build your reputation. You build connections and you build contacts. And I always think of it like it's, it's a much, it's better for you to go that route, learn how professionalism works, how does it operate, dynamics, et cetera, and then go into becoming an entrepreneur. I think a lot of people just think, oh, I want to start a business and it's going to be great and it's going to work. But we've seen a lot of businesses fail because of that. And, and I think that lack of experience and lack of exposure, mm-hmm. and I think EQ, right? It's critical. Over time you build EQ, I think... Mm-hmm. People just think if I've got a good idea and I've got a product and I've got the will, I can do it. And I've seen so many businesses fail because of that. I'm just saying, if you've given an opportunity to work for an organization, take it, learn from it. And then when you're ready, go into that space of actually setting up your business. Is it, is it not a case of the, a reality that education is a little bit broke? And what I mean by that is that Education is great and getting a skill and a degree is important. And, and I think there's many attributes to that. But what I often find is people who enter the workplace with a degree, the degree is not giving them necessarily the skills that's required in the work environment. And so that's the one part. The other part is a lot of big organizations like the Discoveries, the Standard Banks, these great organizations, world-class organizations, they've got some amazing development and learning programs that in some way not just mimic <laughs> universities but are far better at training giving you skills than universities and so you're getting almost free you, know, you pay at university and you're almost getting paid to learn in a corporate yeah absolutely i think but the challenge in that example ralph is that organizations are not going to employ you if you don't have a degree in some instances well in most instances right they're looking for the academic because the, you've got to find something that levels the playing field. Matric does not level the playing field. Probably um, uh, honors degree, maybe a master's to some, some level, actually kind of levels the playing field. So I think that's unfortunately what we have to go through um, in order for us to get the opportunity if that makes any sense. And I always think in my space, if I had a choice between two candidates, one's got a BCom degree and one doesn't have a degree, there's no way I'm not going there's no way I'm going for the candidate without the degree no. because the level of knowledge that comes with the individual that's got the BCom degree will far exceed the person who's just completed the trick. Mm. So I think that's kind of, we've got to find out what's the leveler, you know, in terms of it. So it's not a waste of opportunity. Uh, but I do think to go back to our point was that working for an organization gives you a different set of skills. You know, you talk about trying to find, you talk about skills and, and how to develop it. You need to work, be it for a small business, large business, whatever it is, to kind of develop that work experience and that exposure and skills. You don't just walk into something and hope that it works out. You don't just develop skills by reading. You know, we can be as academic as we want about things, but what really works is real life experience. And, and exposure to clients and exposure to how to deal with conflict and you know dissatisfaction i think it's a completely different dynamic i think also one of the other things i was thinking with entrepreneurs that i think is a little bit of a challenge and, and certainly i find in south africa 
is this notion of selling and sales as a role and as a tool. And I mentioned it earlier, but you know, I watched Dragon's Den the other day and there's a young doctor, really clever, great idea. And they said, well, why haven't you aggressively gone out and try to sell this? And yeah. he kind of said, no, no, I'm not ready to sell it. And so they all, they loved him. They loved the idea, but because he didn't have this desire to get out there and sell and yeah. promote his own product, they sort of declined the opportunity. <laughs> I mean, how important do you see having that sales skill, having that ability to share stories and to engage with people and show value? How important are you seeing that? It's so critical. Let me give you an example and I'll tell you why. In our space, we've had, when we went into lockdown, there were a certain number of advisors uh, that did exceptionally well during lockdown. And, the, and then there's guys that just couldn't mobilize their business at all. The guys that were able to mobilize the business were the true sales individual. Because it didn't matter what forum or platform that they were using. If they have that innate like, ability to sell and to connect with people and the desire, they were able to do it over Zoom, in front of a client, or even on the telephone as an example. So they had this, this ability to sort of go with the times. They changed. They transformed themselves. And then the, the, the guys that I refer to is not the true sales individual struggled to, to now they're still struggling how to like sell to a client over zoom which is interesting so i think in business it's critical because if you can't sell yourself or your product what's the point then you know like i, I think i mentioned earlier you can't be the world's best kept you've got to have this ability to get out there market what you've got but don't do it don't do it in a flashy manner do it in a manner that connects with people and that they can see value so it's absolutely critical and one of the other things I think that's come out for me, and it's quite, the, the story shows itself, presents itself in numerous ways, but, um, and, and it's within you as well. Like I know that you wanted to be a lawyer and then you became an entrepreneur. And so what happened is you had a plan, but you moved away from it. You were agile and, and, and saying that, and, and you talk about the salesperson selling no matter what. And, and it seems like this agility, this agility quotient versus this, EQ or IQ seems to be far more successful now than ever. And this, the amount of people I've done podcasts with that are extremely successful like yourself, but had a very clear vision of what they wanted, but then wow, something happened and they pivoted and, and they just went with that opportunity. How, yeah. how uncanny is that, that you had the same? Exactly <laughs> the same experience. I think, you know, and the, for me, what was interesting is that when I kind of shared with my family that I'm not going to be pursuing, I mean, I studied the degree, I got the master's. I mean, like I went right to the end, call it. And then I just, it just it wasn't the right fit for me. But getting into the role that I did wasn't, it wasn't like I kind of knew what I was doing. It was just an opportunity that presented itself. And I thought, oh, let me just apply and see what happens, you know? And then it was just, the rest is history. And, and I always say nobody gets into insurance by choice, right? <laughs> it's really by default. But I think I realized that I was more passionate about this than I've ever been on the legal side of it. And it came naturally to me. So I think you eventually find your way um, and you don't, you have to be agile. I think your word is absolutely critical. You, you can't set out your career or your life in a certain manner. You've got to have this ability and flexibility to sort of change and, and truly successful people are the ones that have the flexibility to change. You know, lockdown presented the same challenges to every single one of us, but it's how you dealt with it. You know, how did you, how did you change your life to adapt to it? And I think the individuals that, you know, when people ask me, how was business? It was actually not bad. It was, we had a really good run. And it's just because we, in my head, I think initially I was like, oh, this is a bit overwhelming. But then I think I took a day or two and I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And it worked. It, it, it's still working as to where we are. So I think it's just, it, it can be overwhelming in the beginning, but you kind of regroup and you just change direction. But you've got to have that flexibility, be it in a career, be it as an entrepreneur. You, in order to be successful, you've got to be able to, to be agile in whatever space it is. And... and and at the moment, I mean, you've had a good run. How do you see the future for South Africa or Africa in the, in the near to short term? How are you seeing things? 
So, you know, I'm incredibly loyal to South Africa. So I've, I'm very optimistic, maybe sometimes a bit too optimistic about the way I see things. Um, and it, but it serves me, right? So I think in terms of where economically, I think we, we've got our challenges ahead. I mean, I'm not naive about it where we are economically. I do still think that we have the right leadership. Uh, I know South Africans are putting Cyril under a lot of pressure. My view is that he's got to undo what's happened over the last 10 to 15 years. You've got to give him time. You don't expect him to resolve this overnight. I'm an absolute fan of his leadership. I think he's incredibly, he's thought out, he follows corporate governance. He's, uh, you know, he doesn't act on emotion. Um, so I, I like that kind of thinking and that kind of leadership. So I do think that the, if, you, if you hold out, South Africans hold out and we kind of just run through this, this challenging time, it'll be, and it's going to be incredible journey is going to be incredible. In saying that, I do think there's a lot of opportunity that's come out of COVID. It's just about sort of having your, uh, you've got to be alert about what's available. And people are looking for opportunities. Yes, we've lost, businesses have closed down, um, but you've got to be able to reinvent yourself in order to succeed in this, this period. And it's a true test of that. It's re-engineering. It's kind of, it, it's, as much as it's tough, but it forces us into a space to just re-look at everything and see what are the opportunities and just go for it from there. So I'm really optimistic, but economically, I'm not naive about where we are in terms of what's, what's going on. I mean, I echo your thoughts about Cyril. I think that I have a lot of respect for him and I think he's in many ways done a lot. I think there's some one or two shortcomings that I, I certainly feel there's room for improvement. One is speed and I think that, that process of engagement is obviously necessary, but I get the sense now we need to just t you know, turn on the gas, man. I, I just really feel like anything about pivoting or transformation, it requires speed and dealing with corruption requires speed. Now it needs that definiteness. It needs almost, yeah. I don't know. I feel like there's a transformation with him that needs to, to be seen now a little bit more authoritative, um, in terms of dealing with it, not going to this committee. It's like, we're going to take this stuff on and, and the speed with, with change. And I think that comes with, I almost get the sense that a lot of the ideas that are sort of floating that I'm hearing aren't necessarily new and relevant to what other new age companies are doing. And so that, that worries me a little bit as well, that maybe he is modernizing systems or processes but it feels like we're talking around old ways of doing things and not a new way of thinking. And I just wonder, and for me, it's like, I think business has the biggest opportunity. You look at someone like Discovery, you're, you're renowned for thinking differently in a new way with changing behaviors, because that's what needs to happen. We, we need government to change behaviors, we need society to change behavior, and we need business to change behavior. And so how do, how do we collectively bring in business to help him to use some of the the knowledge that's happened and it's not a criticism of him it's just like it's an observation i've got a lot of respect and i understand he's got many people he's playing up against but i but i almost feel like now's the opportunity to push that gas and to lean into business more to the way that they've used data and and behavioral science i think i think ralph if if not we're not having a conversation about cyril but i think if you had to kind of give him a clean slate, if you kind of think of how he's operated in his business, his business, it is completely different to op operating in politics, right? Because he has complete autonomy in his business to do whatever he wants to, and he did it very successfully. I think the difference here is that he's accountable to a lot more than what we understand. There's a lot more undercurrent that we try. There's a lot more that we, we, we don't have access to. And I think that's, that's sort of stumbles him in my view because if you if you look at the the Cyril in business the Cyril in government it's completely different individuals mm -hmm. and if i had to say if you were to give him the Cyril in business to operate in Cyril in government you have a completely different individual i think just the the structures uh, sort of limits his ability and his movement yeah. because they're giving him complete autonomy in terms of how he should be doing things and i think that's the challenge that's that's the way i see it from my perspective yeah. No, I, I probably do echo what you're saying there. I think that I think that there's an underlying frustration that we understand that the the mechanics of how our political system works 
there's room for big improvement because obviously nefarious people have used it for their, their own ways and they're almost stammering his ability and he has to go through these hoops and loops where you kind of get the feeling that there's some reworking of our you know systems and i think it's just it's it's not just South Africa. It's the UK, Brexit. You've got the US, Donald Trump and the whole, you know, mechanics there. So, so unfortunately, some people have seen gaps in these mechanisms of government and, yeah. and used it for their own. And it's a different, completely different animal, right? You're not, it's completely different in terms of how you, you operate yourself in, that, in those spaces. It's not, not as clean cut as we think it should be. So, I mean, we've, we've spoken quite a lot, but I mean, um, um, and, and maybe what I wanted to do is, was to just sort of finish up with giving the listeners just some, some value in terms of, you know, you wrote the book a couple of years ago. What, what do you think are like the five to 10 takeaways from personal branding? Um, what, what would you say are the five, ten takeaways that they can implement in their lives to either grow their business or grow their careers? I think at the, at the outset, uh, when you think about this concept of personal branding, I think what's really critical is understanding what is your reputation. That's for, you've got to have this conversation with yourself and say, well, what is my reputation at the present moment? And, and don't take a view of, uh, you know, kind of taking a soft approach. And wh what I mean by that is that you might think you're in a certain way, but in actual fact, it's completely misrepresented or it's different from a, a perception perspective. I think what's also critical when you're unpacking this conversation about branding is understanding what is your unique value proposition? What makes you different? What is the value that you're delivering to the environment that you're in, be it personal or professional, whatever concept it is? Uh, the other sort of tip or advice I would give you is that, you know, you can be so good. I think I mentioned it earlier on is that you can be so good in terms of what you do, but, uh, if no one knows about it, it's a pointless, pointless, pointless exercise. It's completely that. <laughs> on that, on that personal branding, like, what are you good at? I, I actually struggled myself in some ways to do that. And, and then I listened to, I think it was a podcast or a, a webinar with, um, oh, what's his name? Um, it starts with why Simon Sinek. Yes. And so he, he, and then I think they even asked him, how did you get to your why or your purpose? And he said, um, I don't know if you heard this before. And, and he said, basically he said, go, go and ask a friend why they're friends with you. And, yeah. and then, and then they'll tell you the usual stuff because you're this, you're this, you're this. and then keep on challenging them. And yeah. then as soon as they tell a story about you, so you challenge them maybe 10 times. Yeah, 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 but that's other people do. But as soon as they tell you a story, that will end up being something that will then resonate with why you actually are friends and what's different about you. And he suggested yeah. you phone someone that you would only phone at three in the morning to pick you up if you needed help. So yeah, <laughs> not necessarily a family member. And I tried yeah. it and I think it worked. Not someone that's gonna tell you what you wanna hear, right? <laughs> that's also critical. I, I think, I, I think, I think the thing is that pe many people know that they need to have a personal brand, but I think people struggle. Like I know I did with ha then the, how, how do I, how do I find these questions out? What are the, like even with purpose. But I think it's that conversation. And I suppose it's my last point on that. It's like, it's about moving from purpose to legacy. I think if you really, you understand your purpose, which is the journey you went through. Um, but I, I think also reflecting on what are you going to be remembered for? You know, what, what is important to you? Who is important to you? And, and for me, legacy is a critical, critical part of who I am because I always reflect on, you know, if something happens, if, if to me today or tomorrow, whenever, can I honestly reflect on the legacy and say that I'm really proud of it? You know, I've done my best, uh, be it from a family perspective, business perspective. I think purpose is, is really personal. I think it's something that you've got to kind of understand, you know, why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and I, it's interesting because I think no matter how successful we become in life, I think what truly makes us happy, well, I can speak for myself, what truly makes us happy is how we impact other people mm. with a positive impact on that individual. That, that actually kind of, it's a matter of the heart and it goes to that value. I think all the 
peripheral issues are irrelevant. So I think if I kind of look at it that, and, and that's part of your legacy, right? It's, it's, uh, it's kind of what you want to be remembered, that you've had a good impact on people, you've been good and you've been a grateful individual, you're not arrogant, you're humble, you've achieved success, but you've done it in the right way. And I think if you kind of reflect on the end, for me, that would be, would be the answer. You know, and you, when you're talking about your reputation and your brand, kind of figure out what is the legacy that you want to be remembered for. Uh, when that door is closed, you're not in the room. What do people say about you? Um, I think that's an important question. Do you, do you have any tricks for how people can think about their legacy, or, or not tricks, uh, tools? Um, let me just think about that. The, the one I, I was told was, uh, what would people say at your funeral? Yeah, so you're what, a bit more right? Yeah. So I know that the one, the one CEO of a company, he, he, his brother passed away, but the press said that he passed away. Oh, and, and, and so the press then sort of said how wealthy he was, but how he was a bit of a Scrooge and how he didn't really give back and how he hadn't helped society in terms of his innovations. And um, so then um, when the, they found out he it hadn't actually died, it was his brother. He felt a little bit embarrassed, but from that day onwards, he changed things, and he actually—he's the guy that created the Nobel Peace Prize. And that's an interesting uh, situation because if you think about it, I mean, death is quite morbid, right? So we don't ever want to get thinking about it. But I think it's trigger points. Uh, you know, someone asked me the other day, "How do you know if you're a bad person?" Um, someone's going to tell you that at some point, Ralph. Someone's going to tell you that you're a complete idiot and you don't treat people well. And I think it's those kind of points that should stop you in your tracks and actually say, wow, is this, is this exactly what I'm about? Is this what I'm going to be remembered for? Is this the impact I have on people? So I think you will get your clues along the way. You just, you've got to be open to those clues. You've are, got you to be, are you listening? Yeah, are you listening? I think that's really critical. For sure. Well, it was really amazing to talk to you. I feel like we talked about so much and um, it was great catching up. And you congratulations too. once again for your newborn, two boys. Thank You're wonderful you. before you catch us up. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. It's great to see you as well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great to connect with good old friends. So hopefully we see you soon at one of our events or our, our, our virtual events. Virtual events, definitely. <laughs> I've seen how you've managed to reinvent your business. That's incredible, though. Really, really incredible. I think we had to. It's, and I agree with you. I think some people, I was almost you know, it, it, not looking forward to it, because I don't think anyone was looking forward for this amount of change. But in many ways, for the last couple of years, we've had some very clear plans about moving digitally. And so it almost gave me that excuse to really push that agenda very strongly where I think you're right. I think people struggle to change and so gender empowerment, transformation, all those things. And so when you, they always say like, don't waste a, you know, a good crisis. And so <laughs> we haven't. <laughs> but I'm very proud of you guys. It's incredible. Thank you. Well, it was lovely catching up and um, hopefully see you in person soon with your, your boys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.